If you live in New York, don't come to the Brooklyn Tabernacle if you want a show. Go to Broadway and see the pros do it, right? Church is not a show. It shouldn't be run by a script. That's crazy. That's unknown to the scriptures. It's a place where, where we invite Jesus. Yeah, let's put our hands together and just say amen to that. So, so okay, so then here, here's what I've been faced with most of my life. And in case it means something to you, I play paddle ball a lot. And I don't know what it was, but I hurt the bottom of my foot. So I've been struggling for a couple of days uh, with some pain. So forgive me for sitting. So... Um, when you're born, this holds so many of us back. When you're born, let's say you're born Puerto Rican in Brooklyn. You didn't ask to be Puerto Rican. Nobody in some prior life says, make me Puerto Rican or make me Polish and Ukrainian. That's what I am. Nobody. You're just born, okay? And you're screaming in a hospital somewhere and you grow up in a certain culture. No one asks for that. And that's why to be proud and super proud of America or being white or black or Latino is a sign of ignorance and pride on top of that. Because like you didn't ask for that. That's the accident of your birth or the providence of your birth. And to make a big deal about it is just to reinforce yourself. But God doesn't look down at anyone being special. He's no respecter of people. Amen? So... But by what culture you're raised in, you get your definitions in life. You get your values. You get what's important. You, you, you get inoculated with certain things. My parents had grown up during the Depression where you got married in the Depression. So their mentality, their culture, by the way, my, my dad's gone. He came back to the Lord and for the last 10 years of his life was sober as a judge and... and um, and serve the Lord, which I'm thankful. But my mom, Polish, going to be 102 in November. 102. Polish, we're not smart, but we keep moving. We keep just go forward. So you get your definition. So I was conditioned by a lot of things because of that culture. Right? We're all shaped. That's sociology 101, right? You're shaped by who you're around and that. And you get your definitions and your values a lot. Same way spiritually. Nobody before they become a Christian says, when I get saved, if I ever do, I want to be a Baptist. Or I want to be a charismatic. Or I want to be a five-point Calvinist. Or I want to be an Arminian. Or I want to be anything. Nobody even thinks that. You hear the gospel and the mystery of how we get saved. And now you're in a home, you're in a place, you're in a church. And that's wonderful, but sometimes it's detrimental because you get your definitions of things not from the Word of God, but from the environment that you accidentally were born into. So when someone says worship, you get an image in your mind of what? Not what the scripture says. You don't understand the Father seeks those who worship in spirit and in truth. You just know, oh, worship. Yeah, I know. That's what we do in church on Sunday. It might not be real worship. Not the kind that God is aiming for. Preaching. Prayer. 
evangelism, all these words, we, we get definitions most times first from our environment. Oh, preaching. That's what the guy does every Sunday, the pastor. Maybe he's not preaching at all as we're going to find out the way God intended preaching to be. But how would we know? We don't know anything else. You know, a lot of people, my wife and I have learned over the years, you have to be very patient with them because they're doing all they know. That's what they know. Let's say they grew up in a totally disorganized house, no dad in the house, nine out of ten of our young people in the church, in the, in the church and people are trying to reach, nine out of ten have no dad in the house. So if you're going to teach them the Lord's Prayer, you've got to stop with the second word, our Father, and explain what that means. They have no concept of Father. And their mother might be a space cadet or she might be fighting for their, their, their lives and their welfare. But you, they're going to copy what they saw. The disorganized house? They're going to be disorganized. What would you think they would be? Everything was late with their family. They're going to be late. That's the way it is. So when church, when it comes to church, that's what the, the pilgrimage I'm still on. Like, God, I want to thank you for the things I saw growing up that were true and biblical and right. But God... Pare away, chip away all the stuff that's in me that's churchified, tradition-based, because where I was and how I began, I, I can't have church. The people are smoking weed. They're doing Oxycontin now. They're, 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 the junior Crips and the junior Bloods are coming at 11-year-olds and saying, here's your choice. You join us now or we will beat you to death. That's your option. And they're 12-year-old, 11-year-old, junior Crips, junior Bloods, 13 years old. So doing church and going through some tradition... I found out a long time ago, that's not going to cut it. Satan has power. We need to get more power, the power of God on working with us, right? But we have to, so God, how do you do this? How do you do evangelism? What would Paul do in, in, uh, in New York in 2016? What would he do? So you can't live off of what you saw growing up or even what you read. You know, General Booth was so innovative and, and his wife, who was a better speaker than he was and really the theologian of the early Salvation Army, and they would go to the east end of London and go after prostitutes and, and, and drunkards and see kids who had no hope get saved. And they would bring, what? You're bringing a band in? They're playing instruments? That would draw a huge crowd and all these good things would happen. But now... I remember 20, 25 years ago, a Salvation Army group was in downtown Brooklyn playing their instruments. There was no one within two blocks of them. And no one who walked by would stop there. Why? Because it's, what, that, that ain't nothing. I'm not stopping to hear somebody play the trombone. What are you, crazy? So I stopped the guy because there was no people and I was just a young minister and I said, uh, you know, brother... Uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Our church is not far, but, you know, doing this and there's no crowds and nobody coming, no one to hear the gospel. Oh, brother, this is the army way. Praise God. This is what we do. See? 
We're bound to what we saw and what we've been told. This is how you do church. This is how you do it. So my search has been, God, show me what you want me to do. You know, I know what others have done, but what do you want me to do? What do you want Carol and I and the Brooklyn Tabernacle to do? So here's a very important verse. In the first letter that Paul ever wrote chronologically, the earliest of his writings, the first time he ever put the gospel into print, 1 Thessalonians, or he wrote it, or had someone write it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Listen again. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So this is all said in the spirit of encouraging myself and encouraging you because we got to root for each other. We're all doing the same thing. Amen? When you're blessed, I'm blessed. I hope when I'm blessed, you're blessed. There are no denominations to God. God wouldn't know a Baptist. He only has one Baptist, John the Baptist, and he already was here and left. There are no Baptists to God. There are no Methodists. There are no Nazarenes. There are no Presbyterians. These are man-made names. They don't exist to God. And the proof of it is what our brother so beautifully read before he prayed. Father, that they might be one. These names do not promote oneness of the body. I can assure you. So God looks down and just sees us. We're, there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. There's only, isn't it something we would fight till three in the morning that there's only one faith and one Lord. But we continue to disregard the fact there's only one body. You want to know a, a simple way not to be blessed by God? Make a big thing about the group you're in. That's a good formula to miss out on God's best. Or think that the Brooklyn Tabernacle is special. The, you know, like promote the Brooklyn Tabernacle. It's just a church. It, it, ain't, it, it ain't all that, as they say. So we're all together. That's why we got encouraged and we're going to pray with each other a little while. Now notice what Paul said as he... The thing about Thessalonica was some people think he was there, the commentators, the experts, three or four weeks. Almost assuredly, he wasn't there more than three to six months. How in the world with no money, no New Testament to leave, they couldn't study the Bible as we know it, how did he leave a church with, with leadership in charge? And then write back. He's writing now a year later. Um, and he had sent Timothy to check on them, find out how they were doing. So he says, remember when I was with you, our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. That's all I want to talk about basically with you this morning. Notice he says, our gospel. Already then, there were other gospels, as we know from Galatians. There were always been, has always been, and are still today, charlatans. There are people who have left the path of the word of God and are preaching another gospel. 
he said our gospel and by the way for people who do away with the true gospel and preach something else what are you going to do with those verses in Galatians where Paul says now I'm telling you if anyone preaches another gospel even an angel let God's curse be on them if that doesn't stop you and make you listen up real close in other words, this is no like, oh, I know that televangelist. He doesn't mention the cross and Jesus and never mentions sin. But, you know, he's saying some good things. But is it the gospel? Is it the gospel? The gospel cost God his son. So it's, he says, our gospel. You remember in Romans 1, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel. For what? It What's it? The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Our gospel. So here's what I'd like to suggest to you. I've done it myself. I continue to do it. So I'm not being condescending at all. And I totally respect. I'm jumping around today. And obviously I've been preaching now for about six and a half years without notes that, that was from uh, uh, an experience I had with the Lord, a visitation I felt of the Lord, where for some reason, about six and a half years ago, he impressed them on me, don't preach anymore with notes. So it's changed the way, nothing wrong with notes, and it's just changed the way I preach and the way I prepare, but that's really not important to you. So you're, you know the Bible as well or better than I, so I know I can quote a lot of verses here and you're going to follow. So... Our gospel came to you. Our gospel came to you. So here's a study. Why don't now, from now to the end, uh, we're already at the end of May, aren't we? So why don't now, from now to the end of June, why don't you do something? Read every sermon where the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. Acts 2, Peter, right? Acts 3, Peter again. Acts 10, Peter at Cornelius' house. Acts 13, Paul in Antioch in Pisidia on his first missionary journey. Okay? He preaches the gospel in a synagogue. Paul in Acts 20, 21, when they almost kill him in Jerusalem, and he stops the crowd, he begins to speak in Aramaic, and they all listen. He preaches the gospel. Now, that gospel, that message, whatever the gospel is, and don't assume so quickly that you and I are clear on the gospel. Because some of us have grown up with additions to it and subtractions from it. Every time you add something to the gospel, you weaken its power. Every time you subtract anything from the gospel, you weaken its power. But the gospel they preached with the help of the Holy Spirit converted thousands, the first Sermon Peter, there were thousands joined the church. Slower going later on on Paul's missionary journeys, but churches were built. People were converted from idolatry, heathen idolatry. Amazing things happened, and the message was always what Paul calls our gospel. So what you have to do, and what I've done and continue to do, is I look at every sentence Peter said, and I analyze it like a grammarian would. What's the subject? What's the verb? What's the object of that sentence? What is he saying? All right, next sentence. What is he saying? That's it. The sermon's over. And they, they were pricked in their hearts and said, 
what must we do to be saved? And then he tells them, right? What was that message? Is that what we're preaching on Sundays? Because remember, I don't care what series you're doing, what series I'm doing. I'm in, a, in an easier one now to get to the gospel. I'm doing a series right now that started in January in 1 Thessalonians. And I just, I'm finishing the second chapter this last Sunday. So, because every verse I read, I see something that I'm not sure the people understand. And then how about learning disabled people? How about people who just, we baptized 104 people a few weeks ago, 68, uh, three weeks or four weeks before that. So what do these people know? What do they know about God? What do they know about the Bible? One time I was uh, preaching a couple of years ago, and there was a guy out there, uh, a, a, a Latino from the Bronx, and he had come in and, and, and he went to the security desk and he said, and I learned something from it. He went to the security desk and he said, yo, this was dynamite. This is the bomb. What is going on here at this place? So they went, oh, you enjoyed the meeting? Yeah, yeah, the worship. And I learned about Jesus and, oh, I got to come back. I, I asked Jesus. I went forward to have Jesus in my life. Oh, man. But I got one question. Listen, when the guy was preaching, me, when, when, when the guy was preaching, he mentioned twice, he said, you know, it's like Paul said. Paul said this. He said, who is this dude, Paul, in your church? Because this guy is heavy. This dude is heavy. Some say, saying some heavy thing. And they went, no, that's not Paul. There's no Paul in the church. That's the Apostle Paul. Listen, my friend Warren Wiersbe, who I met in this state for the first time years ago, is a dear friend. He feels that biblical literacy is an all-time high in our country. So you can't assume anything. So now what do I do? I try to say, and by the way, if I'm on preaching about something Jesus said, by the way, the Apostle Paul, he was an enemy of the Church of Christ, but then he got converted and became a leader. He said in another part of the New Testament, see, that took eight, nine seconds, but it gives a little context. That's how, a, so, so now, the gospel we have additives to the gospel which have weakened it. Like, join our church. That's nowhere found in the gospel. <laughs> Pentecostal charismatic distinctives. Nowhere found in the gospel. Okay? Five-point Calvinism. Nowhere found. in. I know the sermons. I'm not that bright, but I have the sermons in the book of Acts. I can tell you them all. None of those things were mentioned when they preached the gospel denominationalism join the assemblies of God praise God the Nazarenes or whatever the group is or Brooklyn Tabernacleism lifting up a church or the projection of a pastor like you're some special servant of the Lord give it a rest just preach the gospel how many say amen just preach the gospel but when you add these things there's black gospel Latino gospel, mi pueblo, mi pueblo, black gospel, southern white or redneck gospel or right-wing conservative Fox News gospel. There's a lot of gospels out there. Am I correct or not? And that, that tinging, that coloring, you weaken it. Now you're not preaching Jesus. You're into some other thing. And we weaken it. Study the sermons. I'm not telling you how to preach the gospel, but just check it like I have. Much 
to many tears and repenting on my end. So, here's another thing. Because I just spoke uh, Monday night to 1,200 pastors from Calvary Chapel in um, Maryland, Sandy Cove. And I was telling them because in their tradition, anybody here from uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, their tradition in their churches is Chuck Smith started it years ago. You have to be preaching through a book of the Bible. You have to. It's not optional. If you're in the Calvary Chapel, you're preaching through a book of the Bible. That's their style. I you know, personally believe there's other ways of preaching, obviously. There's history of the Christian church. Spurgeon wasn't always going through a book of the Bible. And other great preachers, G. Campbell Morgan and other wonderful men and women of God. But anyway, that's their thing. And I'm happy for them. They, they could do what they want. But I said to them, now if you're in a series in the Old Testament, you better be careful. And you're on the life of Elijah. You could do anything you want from 1 Kings, 2 Kings. I don't care where you are. But could you please, let's get to Jesus quickly in the message. Because, oh, listen, he is the image of the invisible God. You can't take that verse, this verse, and say this is what God is like. God wanted us to know what he's like, so he sent his son. He's the exact representation in the Greek, it says, of the invisible God. Okay? There's life only in his name. So whatever you see in the life of Moses, that's great. But please get to Jesus because Moses ain't going to help anybody right now. No, but we haven't, we haven't experienced that. We can delve into the scripture and have sermons and learn Old Testament patterns and leadership principles and have a whole sermon where Jesus is never mentioned. He's never mentioned. The cross, the blood, the, the, the sending of the Holy Spirit, his second coming. I will talk with any of you till three in the morning and you'll never be able to convince me that Peter, James, and John, and Paul would ever preach any sermon except about Jesus. All their letters are about Jesus. All their sermons are about Jesus. So what in the world are we doing preaching about something else? Maybe that's a cause of our weakness. You'll also notice two other things, if I could just say on this thing of the gospel. All hell breaks loose only when you preach about Jesus. The demons do not get upset if you say holy of holies or, or creator God. They don't like that, but they, that doesn't rattle there Yahweh the faithful one no 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 the demons only tremble at one name the media only goes off when you mention one name uh, I've never mentioned this publicly because it's just happening but I've been approached by some people in California who are have done some really uh, guys are Christian and done some really nice um, a, a special uh, I mean, a movie, a documentary that won a lot of awards. And, and I've just been on the phone, as God knows, the last seven days with them because they want to buy the rights to the, uh, the book I wrote, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, uh, years ago, that uh, one book of the year. So he and his wife are new believers but seem very fervent. So they want to talk to me about and to people who, um, my publisher and my agent, about buying the rights to do a, a TV series based on um, the um, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. 
you know, inside the city and all these things and my daughter away from God and all that Carol and I went through and all these crazy things that happened in our church and the guy pulled a gun on me and walked up on the platform while I was preaching and praying and all these bizarre things and, and the changed lives, that's what's got them. These stories that I put in all my books about people in our church whose lives have been changed by the gospel. See, but the whole, I know what it's going to come down to when I talk to him is, are you going to mention Jesus or are you going to talk about God? Are you going to say Lord? Because Krishna is Lord to some people. It's Jesus. Jesus. Every message. Every service. You don't know who's out there. It'll cause a stir. That's, that's where the spiritual warfare comes. Jesus. So do a, do a series on anything you want. But in every message. How, how could we be Christians and not sing about Jesus? I've also found this out. When you do praise and worship, I was in a meeting in Duluth, Minnesota years ago, and the worship leader, they had a team, and it was that kind of performance-oriented thing that I mentioned. I didn't know one song out of the seven, and I'm not the world's greatest you know, uh, um, encyclopedia of praise and worship, but I, it struck me funny that I didn't know one, and neither did the audience, it seemed, because nobody was singing. I don't know what we were doing there. So, but all the songs... We're from the Psalter, from the Old Testament. And I got a weird feeling around song one, three, and four. And it went on. There was never a mention in all seven songs of Jesus. Or the cross. Or the blood. Or the Holy Spirit. It was all creator God and you were great. And the horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. What has that got to do with my life? I don't want any horse and rider to be thrown in the sea. And I don't want my enemies dashed against the rocks. That's the old, co- the old covenant. We're not to preach that. That's not for us. Jesus said, bless your enemies. Pray for those people who hate you. Am I correct? Muslims are not the enemy. They're the mission field. So, and here's the last thing I want to just say about that thing of Jesus, both in preaching and in musing. You want to draw the Holy Spirit's help? You want the Holy Spirit to help you? When you minister? Grace, when you speak. Don't you want the Holy Spirit to help you? I know without His help, I'm toast. Because all I can do is speak conversationally. I am now orator. This Sunday in our, at 1 o'clock, Tony Evans, my friend, is going to speak at our church. You know, he's a preacher's preacher. He has, you know, that, that style. That, but I don't have that. So, uh, you know, he, he could preach about Apple computer and it would be inspirational. <laughs> he just had that ab- ability. I don't. But here's the thing. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit, comes... He will glorify me. If when I'm speaking, like right now, if I try to project myself as someone special or show off or try to get you to get caught up in my personality, the Holy Spirit will withdraw immediately and say, no, 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 I wasn't sent for that. I was not sent to glorify Jim Simbola. You are on your own. When you get back to Jesus, I might come back and help you. But... (laughs) Not that. When you glorify your church, when you weave that in, you know, and it's so subtle, you know, like God has raised us up in Brooklyn, praise God, to take this city for God. I heard that growing up. What a bunch of malarkey that is. Listen, the minute you lift your church up, your denomination, your pet doctrinal thing, the Holy Spirit goes, no, he, remember, he's like a dove. No, I can't, I can't, I can't help you. 
But when you lift up Jesus, oh, he will help us. How many want his help like never before? Lift your hand up. We want his help. So it's got to be our gospel that we preached. That's where the opposition comes. I've been on programs. And where the wincing comes, TV, radio, is not when you say God or Lord. They don't like that, but they don't like it. You just say Jesus. You can tell the engineers, everybody is like, mm, why'd you have to say that? Isn't that something? Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. How would he know that? If he was just a carpenter, how would he know that his name would be the point of contention? His name. His gospel. Lord, we're going to stop right now and just ask you, help us to preach the gospel. Let's all lift our hands up to heaven right where you're sitting. We lift our hands up as a sign of our need of you, Lord. We need you. Ajudano, Senor, we need you, Lord. We need you. We need you. We need your wisdom. We need your boldness. We need your strength. Open our eyes so that we'll see new, wonderful things out of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us faithful uh, uh, delegates sent out by you that we can lift up the name of Jesus. Let our churches be Jesus churches, Lord. Not known by uh, the church name or the denomination, but, oh, that's a Jesus church. That's all they talk about. That's all they sing about. The cross, the blood, the spirit, his second, first coming, his second coming. Jesus, please, Lord, help us to fill our sermons with you, Lord. And then, Holy Spirit, come and help us all. In fact, God, where I'm asking you this Sunday... Make it the best Sunday in all of our churches. Help us to preach like we've never preached before. I don't care what we're preaching on. Lead us on that, Lord. But let it be a gospel message. Jesus, crucified, risen from the dead, coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords. I need thee. Oh, I need Every hour I need Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Just for one chorus, lift your hands and your voices with me. I need the oh, I need the Savior, 
my wife and I have been a collector. We've been a collector of our favorite thing in our whole world, the thing that helps us sleep with the most joy is people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And I'm going to take a, a, a break now, not to take a break, but I want to show you something. We're going to go to dark in a second. A guy um, whose life was changed is like, he's in the top ten of all the ones we've seen. Um, a, a girl, a lady in our church, who was Miss Mississippi and finished second runner-up at Miss America when, um, what's her name, one, became an actress and a singer. Uh, African-American. Um, sorry? Vanessa Williams, yeah. So she was a model in our church. She's in our church, and she's singing in the choir, and she's a model, and she came to me one day and said, Pastor, got to pray for Danny Velasco got to pray for Danny Velasco. Over and over she'd be telling me, you got to pray. I said, who's Danny Velasco? She says, no, you don't want to know. He's the top, the top makeup artist, hairstylist in the whole fashion industry. In the whole advertising model industry, he is it. But he is so depraved. He is so out there. And I've got people fasting and praying and we would pray for him in Tuesday night prayer but I never met him. I didn't even know him. I just knew. They, they said, no, he is so far gone. And I want to just warn you now. There's one picture of him leaning against a tree where he looks subhuman. The drugs and living in the street had wasted him to the point of he was gone. But look at the power that there is in the name of the Lord in Jesus I want to just mention to you that um, if you want to have something interesting to show in your church on a weeknight or something, we just completed um, some months ago, and now it's being shown nationally on television. It was shown on Fox in New York, Channel 5, two Saturdays ago, and then on ION, BET, some other networks. It's called The Rescue. It has nothing to do with Danny Velasco, but... Uh, it has to do with five people in the church, one a couple, three other people, one a guy who I'm going to have breakfast with on Friday named Mohammed, Samer Mohammed, who grew up in a refugee camp, Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon, who was studying to be an imam, who hated Jews, hated the West, hated America, hated the name of Jesus, how he got converted, and then some other people in our church who have very strong stories. It's told with the choir coming in and out a little bit, but it's just about Jesus. I don't appear. I do a voiceover and a prayer. I might show part of it to you before the day ends, but you can get it from us to show to your church. It's 55 minutes long, but it is just pure gospel Jesus. And uh, I trust that um, it's called The Rescue, and you can visit if you want to get it, brooklyntabernacle.org, I guess that's the way to get it. But I, I strong, we've shown it in our own church, even though the people are, you know, in the congregation, tremendous impact. Are we set up or ready to go there? One more minute. Turn to your neighbor and say, how are you today, okay? Okay, so let me say one other thing on this um, note of, our gospel came to you. 
So um, when you do that study, actually do it slowly, I recommend, and write down any thoughts that come to you. I don't need to tell you this. I don't know what version of the Bible you use, but a lot, a lot of years ago, just in the ministry, I was sitting in the office, the house of uh, uh, Leonard Ravenhill, a uh, well-known revival spiritual writer of another generation. He was quite old, and we are sitting and talking, and he said to me, Hey, Jim, when you read the Bible, how do you read the Bible? He meant not just version, but how I actually physically read the Bible. I said, What do you mean? And he said something which to this day is true. He said, You know, I think your mind, we're all different. We're wired differently. He says, I think you're wired like I am. He said, Can I tell you something? <clears throat> if you can avoid it, sometimes you're in a bus or just waiting at a dentist's office, you can't do it. He said, but whenever you read the Bible, never read it without a pencil in your hand. Never read it. I said, what, what, what are you saying? Because I didn't do that back then. I maybe underlined, try to keep it neat, as if that matters. He said, no, have a pencil in your hand, and any thought God gives you, write it in the margin." Scribble, underline, do whatever you have to do, but just be there because he said, sometimes I'll get a thought reading the scripture, and it's a good thought. Like, you know, I think the Holy Spirit showed me something, and 20 minutes later, I can't remember what I thought of. <clears throat> that ever happened to anybody here? Like, that was good. What was it again? Let's go on with the rest of that verse. So, our gospel came to you, our gospel not in word only. Here's something we can all now refocus on and pray about. What did that mean? Not in word only. It seems like the model of preaching that they had in their mind was never to get up and just talk. But to talk with partnership or in partnership with the Holy Spirit. For our gospel Nuts. came to you. Before she walked. No, just turn it off, brother. Just forget it, okay? Our gospel came to you not in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in great conviction. Now, this goes together with Paul's definition. Have you, do you know of any seminary or Bible school where this is um, taught? in terms of homiletics, how to preach. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4. For my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, the cleverness of the speaker, but in the power of God. Listen again. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. That's what everyone's trying to be. Wise and persuasive. Should you be unwise, unpersuasive? But Paul boasts, my preaching was different. It was not wise and persuasive. But it was a, came with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what was that demonstration? We don't know. It definitely was not every four or five minutes Paul calling someone up who was sick and healing them in front of everyone. There were no miracles upon demand anywhere found in the New Testament. The Bible tells us that even Jesus could only do the things the Father showed him. 
he could not just raise all the dead people. He could only raise the dead people that the father showed him. He used that as his defense. So what, what does that mean? My preaching and message were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to just say this to all of you. Some of you might be cessationists and don't believe the ministry of the Holy Spirit as is found in the New Testament is for today. Some of you might be partial cessationists. Some of you might say, no, I believe everything God did then he could do today. Maybe some of us are convicted in our mind that we believe God is still alive. The Holy Spirit is on the earth. But in practice, we don't make room for him. We don't make room for him. But I want to suggest to you that preaching without the cooperation and power of the Holy Spirit is hopeless. Satan is too powerful. Oxycontin has too strong a hold on people. Uh, racial bigotry is too strong in white people and in black people and a lot of other kind of people. These things are strongholds and they can't be broken by glib communication. They have to be, we have to preach the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This power is the word dunamis in the Greek where we get our word dynamite. So his preaching, and I'm not talking about yelling at people and going, Santo, Santo, Señor, and yelling at people and being loud. Loud is not powerful. You can be weak and just be screaming all the time. It doesn't mean putting a tear in your voice and trying to be emotional. It means that when Paul preached, he said, when my gospel didn't come in word only, it wasn't just me talking. You remember that there in Thessalonica. It came in power. You knew God was behind my words. You knew God, the Holy Spirit, was behind the gospel. So that's something we really need to pray about, don't you think? Not over our notes. We got to pray that God will fill us with the Holy Spirit. And then when we're speaking, give some manifestation, some demonstration that he's alive. Because a lot of people think church is just, we're talking about a dead God. Like the Mormons have lectures and the Jehovah Witnesses, all they can do is have lectures. They have nothing alive. But our meetings are supposed to be alive. Now, not emotional, don't discard me and throw me away and say, oh, he's some emotional fanatic, charismatic. I'm none of those things. Who has time to be working people up into a frenzy? Who has time for that? Life's too short. But we don't want our churches to be cemeteries where we're just talking about dry principles. I declare to you today, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit was sent so that people will know that who we're talking about is alive, present, in, in that meeting that we're going to have on Sunday. So Paul says, my preaching was not in word only. I wonder how many sermons in America are only in, in word, word only. Where, and there could be very little testimony of and in power. And in the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit. He is the only agent God has on the earth. Jesus came did what he was sent to do, went back to heaven. Then he sent the Spirit. So anything that God is going to do in any of our churches, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do it, it can't happen because he's the only one we have. I wonder if we reverence him. Do we invite him? We pray before the service begins. We have a prayer band made up of 500 people. 
And they pray in the building. They're praying right now. They know where I am. They're praying for me right now. Bless, what a blessing to me. And so groups of them come to each service on Sunday. The first group pray in my office with me, 12, 15 of them. They pray before the service, and then they lock themselves away for an hour and just pray while the service is going on. Then there's a group that does that for the 11 and for the 1. And then there's 500 who are coming in and out with requests brought before them from around the world. But when they're praying for the services, what they're praying is, Holy Spirit, come. We invite you. Holy, when was the last time you and I did that? Holy Spirit, we invite you. This meeting will be nothing unless you come and bless it. With your presence. I'm not talking about fanaticism. With your presence, with your manifestation of power. Not working up something emotionally, but Him coming. Him coming. Him, the Holy Spirit. Without Him, I know I am. I wouldn't even go back on the train today and, and, and go to the office tomorrow and go up and preach Sunday if I didn't know that the Holy Spirit, you know, wasn't there to help me. Because when I started in the ministry, who else could I trust but the Holy Spirit? A basketball player with no formal training. My wife leading a choir. She can't read or write music. If the Holy Spirit wasn't alive and couldn't help us, why even have church? Am I right or wrong? And isn't that why he chose fishermen and tax collectors? If you were Peter and you had just denied him 40, 50 days earlier, 50 days earlier, if you had denied that you even knew him and yet he set you up to preach the first Christian sermon, who would you depend on? On your track record? On your spiritual maturity? You just cursed and denied them 50 days earlier? Don't you get it? God chooses unlikely people, weak people, to confound the strong people and the wise people. But he does it by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to change your theology. I'm trying to just say what's in Scripture for all of us. Without the Holy Spirit, it's hopeless. You can preach, you can counsel, you can do that. Even when we counsel, we need the Holy Spirit's discernment because eight times out of ten, when a person comes in for counseling, what they want to talk about is not the problem. They're covering up the problem. Now only the Holy Spirit can reveal it to us. Isn't that what He promised He would do? Give us discernment, discerning of spirits, words of knowledge and understanding. We need them constantly. That's why we need to spend more time with the Lord. Not to go over the points we're going to make. The sermon can't be better than the preacher. There are no sermons that work. Only God works. I can take a sermon preached by some famous preacher a hundred years ago and preach it verbatim and it'll put everyone to sleep because it wasn't the sermon alone that was good. It was the guy preaching. He was full of God. She was full of God. The choir prays when they begin their practice. Why? Songs don't move people. God moves people. So if the choir isn't got the anointing of the Holy Spirit on them, it's just another same old, same old. And someone up in the balcony, I tell the choir that last time I met with them. Someone up in the balcony just tested positive HIV. They think they have a death sentence. And you're going to get up and entertain them with music? Never. Impossible. 
You're going to sing about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has to help you to break through. That's how he breaks through. I'll figure this thing out. So when you come back from, uh, we come back from lunch, I can show you uh, this, uh, um, this video about Danny. Because he was the most hopeless person. But people began to pray. Gave him the gospel. Then watered it with prayer. Oh, Holy Spirit, work in his life. Work in his life. Work in his life. My preaching was not in word only. But in power. In the Holy Spirit. And with great conviction. And the word there means not just great conviction in the listeners. It means great conviction in the speaker too. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can make the message real to you. If you're going to preach about prayer, you're going to preach about love, you're going to preach about forgiveness, unless God the Holy Spirit makes it real to us, we're just going to be mouthing truths from the Bible. But people are smart. They know it's a sermon. But they know when you feel it. They know when you believe that. They know when God's done something with you. So Paul is saying, I didn't give you some sermon. I wasn't selling anything. But when I was there, it wasn't in word only. It was in power and in the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. Conviction on their part and conviction first on the speaker. And he is the only one who can bring conviction of sin on the listener. So let's just put the two together. What is the gospel? It's the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Why would they perish? Because of sin. Because God said the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Oh, you can't talk about sin now. People don't want to hear about sin. That's very confrontational. Let's do pastor as life coach. Let's preach about how to make friends and keep them. Good grief. They're going to spend eternity somewhere and you're not telling them the truth. You know, there's a warning in the Old Testament uh, given to Ezekiel, I believe it was, one of the prophets. If you know the truth and you don't warn them, the blood will be on your hands. Now, if you warn them and tell them the truth, now, no, in love. I'm not talking about bull in a china shop. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about self-righteous judging of everyone. But my, my goodness, let's do it in tears. But let's plead with the people. You can't live your own lifestyle and end up spending eternity in heaven. You have to make Jesus your Lord. You have to ask him, forgive me of my sin. Have mercy on me. I know that's the rub in America. Because no one wants to be told they did anything wrong. We're all so proud. We don't want to say, I have to say, I'm sorry to God. Don't tell me what's wrong or right. But you can't give in to that to have an audience. You can't give in to build your attendance. You're going to now twist the gospel and take out repentance of sin. That's horrible. What are these people going to do on television and these other characters who have changed the gospel and are just telling people what they want to hear? They're marketing geniuses. But what will they do in the end? You know that you and I are going to stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. You know that, right? Carol and I will have to give an account for the quality of our work, not the quantity. He's helped us to be faithful for a lot of years, but it's the quality. What are we creating? The people in our churches, do they love God? Do they love his word? 
Do they love to worship him? They know what it is to pray. Do they love people who are other, who are different? And Paul said, the way I did it, the model he gave us was my gospel, my gospel, the true gospel, which I received by revelation from Jesus himself. My gospel came not in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Oh, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall when he was preaching to see? So I'm going to tell you something and then go to prayer. We're all going to pray for each other somehow here. I don't mean to offend anybody here and you don't believe in what I'm about to tell you. Praise God, you believe what you want. You can judge whether it happened. You can judge whether I'm telling the truth. You have the Spirit of God within you. So beside preaching the gospel, the true gospel, that's always been my hunger. Holy Spirit, come and do what you want in a meeting. Mm, It's risky business to turn the reins over to the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say it, pray it. Now, I know this is, to some of you, antediluvian. This is so, like, what are you talking about? The Holy Spirit and all that. Have a service and have a script, and let's get on with the thing. That's the day we live in. I, I went to a conference so long, not long ago, a huge conference. I was the speaker, so this is so typical now. So, okay, Brother Jim, we're so happy you're here. So we're in the green room, right? And there's about seven of us. Okay. The guy's in charge, you know, super organized. You gotta have everything organized. One of these type A people. So, so because that's all they know. They're business people. They don't understand the ways of the spirit. So that's all they know. Just come on, clockwork. So, okay. So listen. All right. The meeting's gonna begin in about five minutes. Now, Jim, when you walk out, you walk out with us, and when you get there, don't sit down right away. You'll have the second. Uh, Harry, what seat does he have there? The second one. Okay. So when you go over there, don't just sit down. Wait when we all, and then just, I'll kind of give a nod, and we all like sit together. We have to synchronize our sitting. You know, it's only right. You can't just sit. Okay, so anyway, Bob, we're going to start the service. We do praise and worship for 11 minutes, Okay. Praise and worship for 11 minutes. Then the choir is going to do that patriotic song. That the track is 3 minutes, 45 seconds. Okay. So, and Pastor Jim, just want you to know, uh, we're going to do uh, at the end one of your wife's songs. Uh, so that'd be just, we're so happy you're here. So anyway, and, and um, so now, okay. So the missions video, what is that about? That's almost uh, two and a half minutes. Okay. We're going to show the missions video. Then we're going to take the offering. So, uh, Bill, Bill, pray for the offering. You have a minute. Bill, you were a little long last time in the offering prayer. So try to cut it down. I'm, I'm not making this up. So, Bill, you pray for the offering. All right, and we take the offering. During the offering, we're going to have that song by the soloist. That's the three minutes and, and 52 seconds. Okay, so now you're going to introduce uh, Pastor Jim. Okay, so... All right, eight minutes, four minutes. Okay, so now you got a minute to introduce him. You have it written out what you're going to say. 
okay, don't go long. And I said, I interjected, and I said, why don't you just say Jim Simbley is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tavern. Let me just get out there. You don't have to make a long thing. No, 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 brother, brother. We're doing this. Don't worry. So, okay, introduction. Now, Jim, you have 27 minutes to speak. Can I speak shorter and then maybe lead the people to pray? No, 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 you can't, because we're, the choir is going to end with a, a kind of medley, you know what I'm saying? Uh, a medley of songs and all of that. And we're going to end exactly at 841. Okay, so we're ready to walk out. Well, wait, wait, we shouldn't walk out yet. Jim, wait, just everybody wait. Let, let me lead in prayer. We've got to pray. Oh, God, we invite you to come into this meeting and show your glory to us. When? Where? How would he fit in? There was no time for that anywhere in that whole thing. There's nothing. There was not a moment. Not a moment. And come, and I just bowed my head, and I said, this is so tragic, so sad. But it was run on time. You got to be efficient, you know. You got to be like Steve Jobs is our is our model, not the Apostle Paul. It's clever people who really know how to do it. So, my wife and I we abhor that because of the way we began and the way what we read in the Bible. The Holy Spirit can do things in sixty seconds that no one can do. So this is what happened. You judge it. So my, it's uh, back some, many years ago. We were having, back in that theater, maybe four services a day. Nine, twelve, three, and six. I did that for six years. Each service two hours long. That's why I look so old. I'm 28, really. Uh, I just had a birthday. So it, wore, it really took my life out of me, to be honest with you. All the, the praying people motion. So it's the afternoon service, and the choir is singing. So I'm sitting up there on, on the platform, and uh, I'm on this chair, and the choir's all behind me, and Carol's over there, and she's directing, and she gets through with the song. Now you judge. Holy Spirit, just bear witness, I pray, that this will stir someone to be more open to you, starting with me. So she directs the song. The song ends. And beautiful song about Jesus. And she just raises her hands. And the choir starts to praise God. No one says anything. She just felt like, where's she supposed to praise God? So the choir starts to praise God. Then the people, I'm sitting, people are, um, a hum begins in the building. Some are praising God. A couple stood. Some lifted their hands. Some bowed their heads. But now between the choir and the audience, there's just a hum of thank you, Jesus. Gracias, Señor, por todo, Señor. Whatever. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, something's happening here. What is it? Something's supposed to happen, but I don't know what it is. Now, when you hold this mic, you control the meeting. That's a huge responsibility. My wife won't move. She just got her hands up. She's not calling the next song. People are praising God. People are praising God. Some, like, don't, got their eyes open, like, 
Come on, move on. Let's, let, you know how people are. Let's move on. What's next here? There was nothing next. Well, she's doing that. I wait for a minute, minute and a half. That's a long time where just nothing is going on except people praising God. So I walk up to the pulpit, and I realize I have the power now to take this meeting any way I want. If I start a song, we're going to sing. If I say to everyone, you may be seated, thank you, choir, the choir will sit down. If I pray, they'll stop doing what they're doing, and they'll follow my prayer. But I didn't know. And I was weak. I was tired. Sometimes God works best when you're tired. And I said to God, God, I don't know what to do, but you know I have this microphone. God, what am I supposed to do right now? Something's supposed to happen. The church is supposed to receive something from you, but I don't know what, who, how. But you know what, God? I'm going to just stand here until you show me what to do. I will not do anything. I was out there on the limb. So my wife still hasn't moved. The choir still praising God. Now it's a little louder, but not real loud, but loud, loud enough that you knew people were praising God. I close my eyes and I say, I'm waiting. Brothers and sisters, if you're facing some decision in your ministry today and you're not sure what to do, wait on the Lord. Don't rush ahead. Just wait. He, he works for those who wait for him. That's Isaiah. So suddenly, my, my attention is directed. I open my eyes, and there's a woman where our sister here is sitting, and she's standing, and her hands are up, quiet, totally quiet, and I feel the Lord speak to me and say, hand her the microphone. Well, that's the craziest thought I ever had in my life. I, I immediately rejected it as some kind of temptation from the devil. No, I'm, I'm being dead serious. Because I thought, that is weird. She hasn't asked for the microphone. She's not part of this service that I can see. She just got quiet with her hands up. You know, in certain circles, the weirder the thing is, the more likely it's God. But I want to correct that. Some people are just weird, right? They're, that's not God at all. But they like to do mystical, weird things. They crawl on their legs or their knees or whatever. And so, but the thought of not doing it, like a sword, as God is my witness, like a sword in me just turning. You just ask me what to do. Give her the microphone. My heart is beating a little faster now just thinking about it. Because I have a lot of faults, but I do take what I do serious, and I don't want to be irreverent to the Holy Spirit. So I can see myself then. I'm on the platform, and I'm going, God, oh my goodness, there's my wife. Everyone's half the congregation praising God, some standing, and I, I can see myself now walking because there were no steps there. Steps were over here. I'm walking. I come down the steps. Nobody's, they're oblivious to me. And I'm, she's standing there, and I'm going, oh, good grief, what am I doing here? <laughs> and I thought, the devil tempted me. You're going to hand her the mic, and she's going to go, I don't want this. Take it with yourself. Keep it yourself. 
What are you doing? But I had to. It was the best thing I knew. Brothers and sisters, when we're open to the Holy Spirit, we want to do what he wants. He won't fool us. Willing, he'll be faithful. So she's standing there, and I just felt the last thought I had was, can I touch her arm so that I don't frighten her? Because her eyes were closed, hands were up, and I didn't want to just get up in her grill and, and, and frighten her. So I walk over. And I'm just like this, about to touch her arm. And she just opens her eyes and grabs the microphone from me. And she begins to prophesy, not predicting the future. But from the word of God, she begins to speak a word of encouragement to our church, like to beat the band. After I handed it to her, I almost fell on the pew next to her. And I'm not a sensational, emotional type person. She just, this quiet lady, began to speak, and now all heaven broke loose. Her words had weight. They were alive, right? She wasn't preaching. She was exhorting. She was prophesying. God is telling, don't you give up. I will be with you. Never say you'll be defeated because I will come, whatever it was, so many years ago. Now everything goes kaplooey in the meeting. Now people are running to the front. They're throwing themselves down at the altar. Now everybody jumps up. Nobody's told anybody to do anything. The Holy Spirit is conducting the whole meeting. Everyone stands in mass. People are praising God. People are weeping, weeping. Oh, weeping tears. I cried so hard I could hardly get through the rest of the day. Just because God was so real. And... She gets done, hands the microphone back to me. I'm like this, hanging on the pew, you know. I, I go back. I forgot now, but it went on and on. Like for the next half hour, it was just God. God speaking to people in ways I could never. The Holy Spirit knowing where to go, what to touch, what to get right. People may be living in sin and covering it up. He goes right there. You and I would never know. He goes, doom, right there. So... Oh, my goodness. When it all ended, there's my wife still with her hands up. She hasn't moved in a half hour. So finally, everything calmed down. It was so emotionally amazing. It just So I said, okay, so you may be seated. What do we do now? You know what? I'm not going to preach a, a regular sermon. Uh, we're going to take the offering now. The choir will sing something. And we went on, and I spoke for 10 minutes at the end. Because God had come. When God comes, you don't need to hear from Jim Cimbala. Trust me. So, that's exactly what happened. And some of you are doubters. I, I don't want to argue with you. I'm just telling you what happened. I would never lie in God's presence to you. So, do a last meeting, but it was hard. Pastor Juan, it was hard because I was just just drained. So Monday's an off day, rest day. Tuesday, I'm in the office, and her husband walks in, who was on staff. And we're talking, and he says, Pastor, was that meeting on Sunday afternoon amazing? I said, yeah, whoo, God came, didn't he? He said, no, that was amazing. 
you know, riding home with my wife, I told her, honey, that was amazing how God used you. She was quiet. He said, but I got to ask you something, honey. Phyllis, how did you get the mic? And she said, you know, Carol led the song. We all started praising God. I stood to worship God. Everyone was, there was that buzz of worship. And I felt God something, putting something in my heart for the congregation. That I was supposed to speak this word of encouragement from the Lord. But you know, honey, my voice is weak. I don't have a strong speaking voice. And there was that noise of everyone praising God. And then I wasn't sure if it was God or me. And I don't want it to be me. I only wanted to do anything if it was God. So I said, God, because my voice is weak and I'm not sure that you want me to do this. The only way I'll do it is if you make him walk off the platform and hand me the microphone. <laughs> if he does that, then I'll know. Wait, wait. Then I'll know. Then I'll know this is you. Don't you know God can do something like that? For my message came not in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. I'm not telling you that every meeting ends up being so dramatic. I don't understand. The wind blows where it wants. I don't know how that wind works, how God works. But I know one thing. You can't put him in a box. And I know number two, if you discard him and say, no, we want to have church and we want control. We're control freaks. We want to know what's going on every Sunday. You can have that. You can have church or you can have the Holy Spirit. All, that's for all of us. You can preach your sermons. Stay. Listen, you know what Spurgeon said? And he was no wild-eyed fanatic. Charles Spurgeon, Metropolitan Tabernacle, preached especially late 1800s, world's most famous English preacher. Spurgeon said, I, when I preach, I never stay too close to my notes. I never get tied too close to them. Because, listen, who knows what the Holy Spirit might show me on the subject while I'm preaching that's not in the notes. I believe that with all my heart. That we don't have to be rigid and super organized because that's not the way God wants us. Yes, we should know what we're doing and certainly be prepared. Let's close our eyes. My brother, if you could just go to the keyboard and just start to play that song and the singers, you are awesome in this place. We praise you, Jesus. Can we just all open our mouths and just praise him out loud right where we're sitting? We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. You're not embarrassed to praise him out loud, are you? We praise you, Lord. We praise you. Gloria tu nombre, Señor. Gloria tu nombre, Señor. We worship you. We praise you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are so welcome in this place. You are welcome in this place. Every eye closed in a moment. 
I'm going to ask you to stand. And when I told you to stand, I want every man to find a man, a partner, face him, decide who's going to pray first over your ministries. And then that man will lift his voice, facing, joining hands. Then when he's done, let him pray out loud. Let him pray with all his heart, especially for the person that he's joining hands with and for himself. And then you'll pray over him and his ministry, his church. Every lady will find a lady partner. And we will pray whatever you're doing for God, whatever you want to do for God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need a demonstration of his power. We need deep conviction in the congregation and in our own hearts of what we're doing. It only is going to come from God. No seminary, no symposium, no book will do it. It's going to have to come from God in answer to prayer. While we're doing it, our brother and team, they'll just start singing that song. Can we all stand and find a prayer partner? Come on, everyone stand. Turn around, find someone, face them, ladies with ladies, men with men.
your hands with me sing you are awesome you are awesome in this place mighty God and your hands and voice you are awesome in this place seated.
So I want to show you another illustration of the power of the gospel, the power of God, and give you a look at uh, some of the singers that my, my wife has, a small group. I love that the singers, you know, Pastor Rivera, if the singers could ever come up to New Hampshire and do a concert, wouldn't that be nice? They're going to Ghana. They're going to, I'm going to Dallas with them uh, first Sunday in June, and then they're going to Ghana in the summer. But they're her 15, 18 best singers. Girls, come down. I want you to see this video and pastor. Um, so a, couple of, a number of years ago, I got a call from a businessman who has become a dear friend. And he said, Pastor, would you be interested in doing a concert and you preaching at a prison? And that had always been my wife's desire, to go to a prison and proclaim the gospel of Jesus there. Little did I know that I would not only become dear friends with that man, but that the prison would become like a second home to me. It's in Louisiana. It's a very infamous prison. It's as large as the island of Manhattan. Has a lot of cattle, a lot of cows, and a lot of horses. The first time I went there, I met George Foreman, the former heavyweight champion who had just bought two horses. And um, the warden has become a dear friend and the chaplain. I've made countless visits there. But this first visit was, which you'll see, was in a rodeo stadium that they have on the grounds. And what they did was, on a Saturday in August in Louisiana, goodness was it hot. <laughs> it was 94 degrees, and I think the humidity was 92 no, no, it was incredible. So the singers did a concert. I preached the gospel. Now the guys in death row, now let me give you this. There's like 5,200 inmates. The average sentence is 91 years. There's only murderers, rapists, and serious repeat violent felons. So nobody's doing nickel or dime time there. No small crime stuff. This is very serious, very ominous place in many ways. Well, it was horribly a slave plantation before uh, uh, Civil War. And then the state took it over after 1865. And it still was a farm. Then it became this prison. But because Louisiana was so poor, they let some of the inmates guard the other inmates and have guns. So for a couple cigarettes, somebody would take someone out just as a favor. It was called America's Bloodiest Prison. It was on the front page of a big national periodical. The warden came in about 16 years ago and, and, and saw a guy get, he had to be there for every execution. They, it was the last electrocution they did, and it did not go well. But the guy went out cursing God, his mother, his father, the warden, Jesus, everybody. And it shook the warden. His mother told him, I raised you in the ways of the Lord. You better do something. That's why God put you there. So he began to invite in ministers. He got the book um, Experiencing God by Dr. Blackaby circulating. He got a hold of Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It circulated. He started building chapels. Uh, Franklin Graham built a chapel there on top of the ones they had. Suddenly, they got a Christian radio station in the prison. 
They've got an extension of New Orleans Theological Seminary, a Baptist school. They got an extension in the prison because so many got converted. They estimate now that there's 1,500 to 2,000 Christians in the prison. The prisoners are getting trained. Excuse me. The prisoners getting trained so that they can minister the gospel to their fellow inmates. There's no chaplain could do what needs to be done. So for this event, there were no, no, nobody on death row obviously could come out. Uh, I have friends on death row, and this place I go, and then there's some very dangerous people there, serial killers who uh, just, it's, it's very dark. And uh, the guys that are locked up because they cause trouble, uh, they weren't allowed out. That's Camp J. There, there's guys in cells who I knew who were in the same cell, 10 by 8, one hour out a day for 33 years. It's very hard to even picture that and all that. So they not only recorded the singers singing, but they interviewed six or seven of the guys who told their stories about how they found Christ. Okay, They put it together into a video. We, we own it. It's called um, Miracle of Hope. And you can get it. Just call the church. And this is, could be shown to youth, to men. It's not gory, but it's, it's, it is what it is. It's a little edgy because just the nature of everything there. So um, there's two guys there that are my friends. And this little clip is very short. But you'll see my wife singing in the second row. You'll see the singers, and you'll hear these guys' story. So we're going to go to dark. Make sure it's loud because there's music in this, okay? We go. This place was a rough place years ago. There weren't too many restrictions on what went on underground here, you know. Um, So he left the door open for the enemy to just get hold of people and just do whatever he wished. And it was, it was a weak place in my life, and the enemy saw access. And he came in, you know. It was uh, pitch black at night, and there was nothing to sit down on the floor, take my clothes off, sit down between the bunks, you know, and perform my little service, you know. Be, and, and it was not questioned by anybody and, and offer up sacrifice to Satan and all that. And, in fact, I've still got the 666 tattooed on my chest, and I wear it just more or less as a testimony of who I'm not anymore and it just the hopelessness of it just it just caved in on me and I just I just you know I'd stand back there and I'd contemplate making up making a rope and putting it around my neck and I all I'd have to do is just step off to you know just step off of something and just and they'd find me you know it'd be a whole day before they'd find me and um and then I just then that evil rose up in me, that desire in me not to do it like that. I was going to go out with a bang. I was going to give them something to talk about for the next 20 years. And I had that iron back there. I had all that leftover metal back there, you know, heavy stuff, quarter-inch plate and all that, and the tools to put something together, and I was going to build me an axe. And I was just going to move from shop to shop. These guys were in these different shops, a television repair shop, you know, electronics repair shop, a carpenter shop. There was no help there. I'd walk from shop to shop and just made a mess of them with this axe. And I was going to go through the back of the gym, out the front, down the walk, till they put a bullet in my head. And um, I was to the actual point that I was had my hands on the metal. And I said, let's get this thing rolling. To this day, I cannot tell you how I wound up with a signed clearance pass in my hand. Was standing in front of the chapel. I went in and sat down with a chaplain, Chaplain McGee. 
blessed man of God. And um, in fact, it was a day that he wasn't even supposed to be here. And I went in, 20 minutes later, I was on the floor, gave my life to the Lord. A week later, I was, I was baptized and I've never looked back. No one knew how alone I was feeling And the emptiness I tried so hard to hide Though I laughed and said my life was fine without you I was covering up the secret tears I cried I knew I wanted to go to church. I was drawn out there. So I would come out there and I would just sit on the weight pile and I'd listen to the churches. And I'd listen to all of them. Just one day I just got up to gumption to head on out there and sit in the back pews. And I'd just sit back there and eventually I was sitting in the front pews. But friends of mine had walked by and I'd kind of slide down in the seat so they wouldn't see me. See, about two months later, I was sitting in the front pew. And see, when they'd walk by, I'd be hollering at them. They was ducking me. They'd cover their head up trying to get past me. i said, come on over here, sit down. I got a place for you. You need to hear some of this stuff. So there's definitely a change. Glory to God. He definitely changes people. And I can say that with all confidence and truth. He changes everything. Through your precious blood, I found I've been incarcerated for 13 years, 8 months. I've been in Angola since 94. I was arrested in 91 at 19. I spent about two and a half years in the parish jail. I mean, the night before I was arrested, I had came home and my mom had asked me not to go out. She felt like I was going to get in trouble. And my mom was a Christian woman. My mom had to go to church and stuff. She had been going to church for like the past six months. And she said, Bubba, she said, I, I feel like you're going to get in trouble tonight. I went out that night, and that, that was the last night that I would ever be, you know, free, physically free. And when I get in the parish jail, my mom's pastor had came and seen me. It was an old guy, about 70 years old, and I, I was in the dungeon for a fight. And uh, I had nowhere to turn. I was in a whole new place. You know, life as I knew it existed no longer. You know, I'm in like... It was crazy, man, 19 years old, in a parish jail. You got a murder charge, and um, really, you, you think your life is over, you know? I had even thought about killing myself when I was there. I'm like, man, um, I can't do this. I can't live like this. Man, when I first got locked up in that parish jail, and I walked in that cell, and I seen them concrete walls and, and them iron bars, man, I felt captivity. And I had met some good brothers, a, a guy named um, Steve Dominique, Steve Stewart, Elsie um, Crosley. And these were some real good brothers. I'm talking about they was really real with the things of God. And I'm talking about, man, we used to have church on the yard back there on Falcon Eagle Fence. It started like five people. And before you knew it, it was 30 people in the yard. And these guys, you know, and then we started meeting in the kitchen, you know. And it was just amazing to, to find brothers that wanted to, you know, really serve the Lord and that, that was you know, sincere with it. And um, that's when my spiritual growth started taking root is when I started surrendering my life more to God. And that's where the change comes from. You know, before God, I had no purpose. Even when I, before I got arrested, I didn't know what the purpose of my life was. You know what I mean? That's where a man changes 
with a man, a man submits to God. You can get all the education you want in the world. If you don't submit to God, then you ain't never going to change. Because your heart has to be changed. And God's a surgeon and has never lost a patient. And he deals with the heart. He's a heart specialist. And that's how I look at it. And, and you know, people say, well, why do you wait till you come in jail? Because everything's stripped from you. You don't have no type of distractions. You don't have nothing. See, before you come to jail, it's like, well, you in control. You know, you run things and you don't got time for God. You don't got time to even think about God, you know. I think everybody prays coming up. That's something you're going to do. I don't ask God for a brand new car before I got arrested and stuff. But when, when you get faced with this type of situation, you're like, I don't have nowhere to turn. And when you're facing that hard concrete and that cold steel, you're like, there's something greater than this. You know, I got to call something greater than myself. And you realize it's God that you got to reach out to. Because if it wasn't for God, I man, I wouldn't have made it these last 13, 8 months. Man, ain't no way. Ain't no way, Rush. He's a guy of love and God of compassion, God of forgiveness. And once we tap into that, it, it's hard to explain, you know, his peace and stuff, man. It's just, uh, it's new every day. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's crazy. I, I sit in my office and uh, I just feel like it starts squalling. I feel like crying like a little baby. It's amazing. I'm like, man, what in the world going on over here, bro? It's like I'm finna have an emotional break or something. <laughs> Being in prison is very difficult. Some days are very depressing and discouraging. I look around, I see men that's been locked up 20, 30, and 40 years. I see, but at the same time, I, I gotta realize what God's doing, and I gotta understand that His purpose is greater than this life sentence. And see, when I get in God's reality, I gain that peace, you know, that peace and that joy. And I know he's going to bring me out of here, you know what I mean? And I, I had one guy say, well, what if that don't happen? I said, well, I'm going to die believing. Because the moment I quit believing God, I'm going to become hopeless in a hopeless situation. And it's going to be a sad case. One of my favorite Bible verses is in John 15. He said, there's no greater friend than he who lay his life down for you. And he said, I've done that. He said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friend. And you know, people are quick to say, you're my friend, but man, that's personal. If I say you're my friend, I'm saying it's personal. You know, that's a lot of love there. And just, you know, to know that you're loved by God, that's amazing. You know what I mean? I can't express it. You know that first guy with the 666? His name is Greg. So the last time I was there, every time I go, I got to go back now soon, the next few weeks, month or so. So I say to the warden, so warden, I'm coming. Okay, good, we'll have that lunch for you. So I always, not ask, but they kind of do it for me because we've, uh, last Christmas, our church gave all 
5,200 inmates or whatever they have in there, a shirt, a T-shirt that says, um, uh, I think, uh, maybe the, oh yeah, no, someone cares, and on the back, Brooklyn Tabernacle. Everybody got a bar of soap, everybody got deodorant, everybody got a pair of socks, because these are the things they really need, right? So we got a box, all 5,200 boxes went there. So they, they love me and appreciate what the church has tried to do, so they'll make a special lunch. And, and chicken and all this stuff, they fry everything in Louisiana. Water, everything is fried. Just. So the, those guys, seven, eight of them who are in the video, they'll come because I'll tell the warden, I, I don't want to eat alone. I want them to come. Well, they love that because instead of their normal food, they're getting like someone's throwing down. So we're there. So that guy with the six sixes, we're, we're talking. I'm asking him all these questions. So how are you doing? So what are you going through? What can I pray about? This, that. You know, asking them about. Because that's hard. See, because they're new creations. So when they think of what they're in for, it's very hard. Because that was done by a different person. You get it? It's very hard. And when I leave and they have to stay, difficult. So he looks at me while we're eating and he goes, Pastor, you've been asking us and talking to us about our lives. What are you going through? Could I pray for you right now? What, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you facing? He, he's serving life sentence. Most of all of them, unless God intervenes, they're going to die in that prison. Um, and he's asking, what can he pray about for, for me? So <clears throat> one last thought before we break for lunch. Very, very important thought. You want to know what's really helped me in the ministry that I learned and which we guard and treasure? This. When, <clears throat> excuse me, when Abraham Lincoln was just an unknown, sometimes congressman from out in Illinois, he delivered a, a speech <coughs> in the late 1850s, and the speech got picked up and put in newspapers, and then he was invited to Cooper Union, which is a school in Manhattan in the city, New York City. And from that and that speech, he got catapulted into the nominee for the new Republican Party, so he became president when the Civil War broke out. The speech that made him famous was odd because he quoted the Bible and he's the only president in the history of our country who was not a member of any organized church. Lincoln's the only president who wasn't a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or whatever. And what he did was he picked up on Jesus' words when Jesus talked about a house divided against itself or a kingdom divided. Now at that time... Slavery was in the South and the North, no, no slavery, but many times prejudice. And then when new states came in, like Missouri and Kansas, when those states came in, there was a fight over whether they would be slave or they, whether they would be free. So Lincoln made this speech and he said, remember what Jesus said. Now the context was in Mark where Jesus was casting out evil spirits and his accusers, the religious leaders, came to him and said, you know how he casts out demons? Because he's on the side of the demons. He's, the, he's with the prince of Beelzebub. 
the prince of filth. So he's on that side. That's why he has the ability to cast out these spirits. And Jesus, instead of saying what you think he would say, which would be, hey, do you know who I am? Do you know where I came from? Do you know how I was born? He doesn't. He reasons with them and he goes, wait a minute. If I'm on the side of Satan and I'm casting out Satan, that's impossible because that would mean that that kingdom is divided against itself. And he said, no kingdom divided against itself can stand. No house, that was the name of the speech, house divided against itself. No house divided against itself can stand. There's something about division that will destroy the very thing that's being divided. So his, his thesis was this. America will be all slave or it will be all free, but it can't continue slave and free because that division is going to destroy it. And he, he became prophetic and probably quoted the Bible more than any president we've ever had, even though he had that unique background, um, because more blood was shed in the Civil War than all the other wars that America has fought put together. Gulf War, Korean War, World War II, World War I, Spanish-American War, all the wars put together, more Americans died in the Civil War. And he was the one who said, by the way, in the second inaugural address, when, when they saw the carnage that no one was going to win, the North was going to win, but nobody won. The North won, and slavery was abolished, but no one won when they saw how many died. And he said, who's to say that God, when he saw every lash hit a slave's back, he said, for every drop of blood you drew from a slave's back, I'm going to require it from your own sons. He went into some, to me, some mystical realm there. So, but the principle is this. Anything divided against itself can't stand. So when I was playing ball at Erasmus Hall High School and a lot of other places and University of Rhode Island, it was true that sometimes there was a guy on the team who really was gifted and could play, but you were better off without him because he was divisive on the court and in the locker room after the game, before the game. He would just make trouble, complain about the coach, complain about another player, right? And I remember a thousand times, you know, uh, going down the court, dribbling the ball, and some of the guys you know, who were our, our main scorers, I was like a point guard, distributor of the ball, and uh, they would yell at me and say, would you call my play, man? Call my play. I want the ball, right? And then other guys would be yelling at me, and I'd have to confront them, even though they were big enough to just, just squash me with one hand and tell them, hey, listen, just calm down. There's one basketball. We've got to play together. And if you don't want to play together, get off the court. Get off the court. Because if we don't play together, we're going to lose. And every coach, pro football, anything knows a team playing cohesively together is going to do so much better than a team divided. Are you with me so far? So nowhere is that more true than in church work. Some of the strongest warnings in the Bible are made against divisive people. Warn them, Paul says, that cause division among you. And by the way, if I may say, this is probably the least practiced passage of Scripture. 
because it takes a lot of guts and faith to do it. Warn them that cause division among you. After a second warning, have nothing to do with them. Watch out for those that cause dissension among you. Then in the Psalms, oh, how beautiful and precious it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that comes down the head, the head of the high priest, rolls down his neck even to the hems of his garment. Using our brother verse ready read in John 17, Father, that they might be one, even as we are one. So imagine the unity of the Father and the Son, okay? And then he's praying that we're to be united. There is nothing more grievous to God. There is nothing more used by the enemy to hold us back from God's best than fussing and fighting in the church. And it's very rarely dealt with. But my background wasn't Bible school. My background was basketball. So I knew that in Carol's choir, how in the world could God anoint her choir if they're all gossiping about each other? I mean, let's be real. Let's do real talk. How, if they're all gossiping, fussing with each other, talking snide remarks, who does she think she is? And then, oh, Lord, our God, when I am awesome. God just looks down and goes, stop it, just stop it. We lose the blessing of the Holy Spirit. This is why ministers have the highest rate of heart attacks of every profession. You don't think it's making sermons. Stop it. I said stop it. You could put my brother there with that Bible in a corner. I could give him a passage and within 10 minutes he would have three points and a conclusion. He would break down the passage. He would know how to preach. That, listen, preaching is difficult. We need God's help. But the worst is dealing with people. Dealing with people. People are nuts. And they'll drive you nuts. Why are you laughing at me? Am I correct or not? No, some people just will drive you to despair. Look at the problems Jesus had with 12. 12. A traitor, a doubter, a denier. Fussing and fighting who would be the greatest. Am I right or wrong? But so we have to address this because the future of your church depends a lot on the unity of your church. So a lot of times pastors have heart attacks because they're on a treadmill. Watch the treadmill. You're moving, but you're going nowhere. You're preaching, you're praying even, although there won't be strong prayer. A church divided won't even have a prayer meeting. And can I just say something that Charles Finney mentioned that is very good. When people pray together, it is so conducive to unity. It's very hard to cry out to God the way we were just doing and then fuss and fight with each other. It's almost impossible. So here you're doing. You're preparing. You're having outreaches. You're doing everything you know to do. And you're going nowhere because behind the scenes, everybody's just like this, just talking. This starts in Bible schools. It's even among denominations. I talk to ministers and I say, so what do you have, like a monthly gathering? No, I don't even go. It's all just political, cutthroat, gossiping, slandering. Everybody's showing off what they're doing. They don't care about the other person. That's why you all gathering together to pray as part of this fellowship is a very good thing. 
Not that you all can work together for outreaches. I've seen that rarely happen except for Billy Graham and all that. Each church has to explode itself. But it, God is pleased when we dwell together in unity. We all have little different styles, doctrinal approaches on secondary matters. But we, we have to root for each other. I Listen, I grew, so I grew up, I'm in the ministry, and I found out that not only don't churches root for each other, pastors root for each other. They rejoice when another church has a problem. Well, you don't have to not say amen. You can do all you want and nod at me. It's absolutely true. I met guys who would say, well, yeah, I always thought there was something about that guy and that church. And if the other church was being blessed, oh, that was a big disappointment. So I would come back from some trip around the country, even to this day, and I'll tell some guy, let's say he's a Nazarene. Nothing against Nazarenes or anything. Uh, I just thought of that name. So you say to this Nazarene pastor, man, I was just in Angola. And I was down there at the prison. That's what that prison was called, Louisiana State Penitentiary. Most of the slaves came from Angola, so it has that name. So I was down there, and you should see what God is doing. Or I was just in a conference in California with Calvary Chapel. You should see what God is doing. They baptize, you know, 85 people, whatever, the report. And the guy will just stare at me. And I'll go, isn't it amazing? And he goes, why are you telling me? They're not one of us. Oh, We can say, oh, but it's true. In a lot of places, it's true. I don't feel that at all here. I feel love in this room. I feel unity. But we have to avoid, first of all, having disunity among ourselves. We've got to root for each other. Do I get a witness here? We've got to root for each other and say, come on. And pray for each other and, and help each other as best as God leads us. We never can be fussing and fighting. But let's just talk about inside the church. So you can have a deacon board that is just divided. You can have a board that's just hardly talking to each other. I had a guy come to me at a music conference many years ago. And he came up to me crying, crying, crying. I was in Houston. And he came up to me and he said, I'm from the Cincinnati area and, and I love your wife's music and I want to meet her. And she was in another place in the room. And he said, pray for me. And he's just weeping, older guy. And I said, so what's the problem? He said, listen, my pastor and I haven't talked for two years. I said, what? He said, yeah. Uh, he just, we had some disagreement or something. And he just says, look with one of his associates, they tell me. Have two songs, have them in their choir uh, um, robes, sing two songs before I preach, and that's it. That's all I want to know. Just have the two songs before I preach. You haven't talked in two years. No, we haven't. We, we had a disagreement. So I, I said, oh, your meetings must be mighty in the Holy Spirit. I mean, I can just imagine what kind of church services you have where the leadership doesn't even talk to each other. This is the minister of music and the pastor. But this is the way Satan works. He's, he's a divider. He's a slanderer. When you slander and talk about someone who's not present, you are now in his turf, his territory. Because the name devil means accuser or slanderer. So you've got to get that into the people's minds. And you have to, we have to preach on it. You've got to preach on love. You got to just always be watching that because Satan is always looking to divide. How many uh, follow what I'm saying? Give a strong amen. Yeah, always, and you, you can't wait till it happens because then you preach a sermon. The people will say, oh, I know why he's preaching that because they, yeah, they got shot at that other guy in our church and uh, all of that. 
and it, then it's too late. You got to try to cultivate this, that love is the most important thing. So who's the most mature person in this building today? Who's the most mature Christian? I know who it is. It's who's the, mo who's the, most, the most mature Christian in this place? Very simple. The one who loves the most. Well, that's simple. Irrefutable. You can't argue with that. Who's the most like Jesus? The one who loves the most. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs done to it. That's the most mature. I don't care how many verses I know or how you could preach or what book I wrote. That, that's not a sign of maturity. The most mature person is the one who loves the most. And those people who love are not going to cause division. They're going to be watching out for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which is what we must keep. So um, what's this all mean to us? Sometimes it means you've got to confront people. You are causing division. I tell the members when they come into the church, every month or so we have members come in at 9, 11, and 1, usually in numbering 150 or something new members. So they'll come all to the front of the church, and I give them a charge, then they face the audience, and then they cheer for them, and then they, uh, um, then they, I ask them where they're from. So when in my charge to them, I started doing this over 20 years ago, and I do it every week and every month, and listen to what the congregation hears every month. So new members, you join the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Don't talk about the Brooklyn Tabernacle because that God doesn't like that. We're not a brand. You talk about Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. Talk about Jesus. Invite people to church. If you, that would be a good thing. They can hear the gospel or you share it with them. So uh, find your place in the church. Why did God send you here? We have a lot of holes in our church, weaknesses. You maybe have a gift or a strength that God wants to use in our church. So just don't sit here on Sunday. That's the American idea of church. It is not a New Testament idea. So come on. Find out what I want. I want to say one last thing to you. Now everyone's listening. So here's what. I now give you authority. Here are all the pastors standing with me. And there's all those deacons all across the front of the church. Forty of something people. Deacons and deaconesses. So we're here to serve you. You're not here to serve us. You do not shine my shoes. I shine your shoes. No, 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 no. You don't do anything for us. You follow directions when, when we need to give them. But we're here to serve you. So now as you're coming in as the church. I give you authority in front of all the congregation. And from all of us. If you hear anyone speak. A gossiping word. Unkind slanderous word. About another member. About a pastor. A deacon. An usher. If you hear anyone speak that word. And the other person isn't present to defend themselves. You have authority for me to stop them in mid-sentence. To say time out. Stop you cannot do that here. Who hurt you? Come with me to Pastor Symbol's office. He'll get whoever hurt you. That person will apologize. We'll get on our knees. And if Pastor Symbol hurt you, he'll get on his knees, which I have done, and he'll apologize. 
Because I tell people, I didn't wake up wanting to hurt you, but I'm human, so I might have hurt you. So I go on my knees and I ask your forgiveness. But one thing we will not do is talk about each other behind each other's backs. Because no house divided against itself can stand. And no kingdom divided against itself can stand. So we just, uh, we rarely lose a choir member, but we lost one some months ago. Um, uh, because they get the same talk before they come in, and we tell them, I don't care if you sing like Pavarotti. If we find out that you talked about another choir member and gossiped or slandered them behind their back, it could be grounds for dismissal. So this woman, who could really sing well, she did it twice. The second time, the first time they addressed her, the leadership, second time they brought it to me, and I said, I love you, I really do love you. Maybe you could work in the Keepers of God's house. They clean the building. You, you could do something else. But do you think my wife's going to kill herself to get a song? Do you think she's going to then pray with the choir? And we're going to stand up in front of these thousands of people and try to minister. And you're, we're going to grieve the Holy Spirit because your mouth won't stop. No, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to do that. I wouldn't let that go on on a basketball team. Much less the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't mean to sound like a Marine drill sergeant, but am I speaking truth or not here? So, and then what that does is puts fear in people, godly fear, that you can't touch the body of Christ. I'm dealing with a case right now where someone is attacking the church, it seems, that he left. And I'm trying to tell him and his wife, you do not want to do that if you're doing it. It would be like, Someone hurting Chrissy or my Sue or my James or one of my grandchildren. You don't want to do that because I will react. I'd rather take the shot myself, but don't you touch my children. So when someone talks and hurts the, the body of Christ, they're on very dangerous ground. Would we all say yes? So I just want to encourage you. And after lunch, we might have Q&A. You write out something on a card while we're having lunch. I'm no answer man, but if there's some subject you want to talk about, a prayer meeting or whatever, um, we'll do that. And I'll have a very good video to show you right after lunch. But what I want to do right now is just pray that God will grant unity in all our churches. Not just unity among ourselves. Pastors sometimes are mature enough, we should be, that we love each other. We encourage you. The problem is in the church. The problem is in the church. We want to, now you can't be a dictator, you can't rule with an iron hand that way, but what you can do is let people know that is not permitted. You, you just can't do that. But here's why. Here's why. It's because it just defeats what God has in store, the good things he has in store for our churches. Father, we come to you today and we pray for a spirit of unity and love among our congregations, starting with mine. Take away gossip, fussing, fighting, seeking preeminence, wanting to be seen, wanting to be noticed, the pride of life, showing off, resenting other people that God uses, and humble us all so that we, our congregational members, Love each other. Weep over each other. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. But we come against it in the strong name of Jesus. For some of us, God, we need wisdom how to confront what's happening right now. For my word has struck a couple people, I believe, Lord, because that's exactly what's going on. And they don't know what to do. But help us not to fear the face of man, but to reverence you and to do what's right for your church, which you purchase with your own blood. Help us to love each other now. Help us as we eat lunch to eat with people we don't even know, not just the same old, same old, but meet new people, encourage new people. Bless the food we're about to have in a little while. I pray for it now that it will be nourishment to our body and we'll just love each other. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Our brother's going to give a last word of instruction, but before he does, well, just spin around and give three people a high five. No handshake, just high five. We're going to take an offering. We're going to do praise and worship. Maybe there's something else that we're hoping will happen, but we do try to pray. God ordered the service, and my feeling is if he led the, uh, if he led the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness, maybe he could lead us through a service. All in favor say aye. That's my feeling. Without forcing anything or being weird to make it, quote, spiritual. So um, how can different churches in a community work together to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ without being tripped up by the diversity of the churches? I think we can all agree on the major things and, and that we're Christians and we love each other. On secondary matters, do we disagree probably on some things? Um, my goodness, I don't even agree with myself sometimes on some of the views I have. Um, but that shouldn't stop us from fellowshipping, right? Like Tony Evans, who I'm going to speak for the first Monday night in, in June. He's speaking for me this Sunday at 1 o'clock. I'm there at an anniversary meeting for his church on a Monday after I speak at First Baptist Dallas with Dr. Jeffress on Sunday, first Sunday in June. So Tony Evans, in every service, takes communion. He grew up Plymouth Brethren. No, they don't have a service without taking communion. We don't do that. We take it once a month. Who's to say? Right? Could anybody find a scripture that you have to do it every service? So it doesn't bother him that we don't do it, and it doesn't bother me that they do it every... So we're going to agree to disagree. Amen? But we can still love each other. Still... Um, encourage each other and one last one before you see Danny Velasco how would you address the political uh, di discord in the body during this election cycle there are so many different views there are and um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm apolitical in the pulpit I don't ever speak about political things I preach the word Paul told Timothy preach the word and people pray vote for the one that you think is going to be um, best for the country and best for the cause of morality, decency, and whatever. Because in the end, people are going to do what they're going to do anyway. And then you get linked with a candidate if you overboard, and then if they blow up and do something crazy, you're linked with that. I don't trust any of them, to be honest with you. Do you? Well, if anyone thinks the Republicans or the Democrats are the answer they're living in another world than the one I'm living in. 
We had um, eight years of Clinton, eight years of Bush, now eight years of Obama. I don't see any change in the country except downward spiral in terms of morality. Correct or incorrect, right? <clears throat> so my view is this. I, I just submit it to you. So a country can't be better than the people that are in it. Would that follow? How could America be better than Americans? No politician has the ability to change one American. I'm all for the best laws and all that. But the only one who can change an American, their heart, is God. Working through the church as we preach the gospel. Then a person gets saved, they're not going to do negative things. Not going to hate. But politicians have no power whatsoever to really make any change. So, at last... Danny Velasco. Remember, halfway through it, leaning on a tree. Tell me if that's not about as low as a human can go. Then I just want to say one other thing and show another <clears throat> little video to you, just to encourage you. Have you had a good time so far today? Let's thank God we were even together today. So watch this, this story. I cry every time I see this story, and I've seen it 50 times. But I remember how they went through the, what, how, how people prayed. So watch. As a freelance hairdresser, a makeup artist, working in photo studios in New York and basically around the world for about 35 years. But in my very early 30s, I decided to move to Paris. Uh, because I wanted to be in the center of what was happening fashion-wise. And within two months of being in Paris, I got my first cover of Vogue magazine. When that cover hit the newsstands, um, my career just exploded. Now I was charging $3,000 a day, and uh, I was working every day. I had as much money as I wanted to spend on drugs. Suddenly it wasn't like pills and alcohol, now it was cocaine and then it started, then heroin came into the picture. One day I was on a photo shoot um, in New York City and uh, the model who was on this photo shoot was a very beautiful redhead. And she began to talk to me about the Lord. God is in, God loves you, and this. And I was like, you know, whatever. She to me, she was a religious fanatic, and I really didn't have very much to say to her. I just let her talk. Before she left, she said, um, "Hey, Dan, do you mind if I pray for you?" Right in the studio, she just took my hands and she began to pray out loud. And I had never been around anybody praying out loud, you know. And I began looking around at people going like, you know, I just thought this girl's nuts. Before she walked out, she said, look, you know, you're in trouble. She goes, I know who you are. I've seen your work in magazines for years. And um, I know you work with all these famous celebrities, but you're in big trouble. And she said, so I just want to let you know that the day you call on the name of the Lord, he's going to set you free. And I said, oh, really? You know, like that. And I went, like, you don't understand. Uh, I've gone way too far. <laughs> you know, and so she said, oh, no, no, there's no hopeless cases with Jesus. And I was like, okay, whatever. You know, but listen, I will never call on the name of the Lord. That won't happen. And I won't ever come to your church. One of my contracts uh, was for a clothing manufacturing 
company. And uh, we were shooting down in the Caribbean, and I overdosed on heroin. They sent me back a few days later to New York, and they pulled my contract on morals clause. And I didn't care. All I wanted to do was shoot dope. So one day, I, I pulled a garbage can between my legs, and I just began to cut up everything that had my name on it. Anything, passports, driver's license. I put the keys on the table, and I just walked out and closed the door behind me, and I never went back. And I began to live on the streets. Day-to-day existence on the streets of New York was um, you wake up, you're sick, you need drugs. I had gotten down to about 108 pounds. Um, I developed hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. Every once in a while, you know, living on the streets, I would, I would uh, go to a payphone and I would call Wanda and I would say, look, I need some money, you know, and she would go, well, if you would come by the church, Today, we have choir practice tonight, you know, uh, I can give you 20 bucks or, you know, whatever. She never gave up on me. She never gave up on me. Um, she never gave up on me. I didn't know it, but she had a whole team of, like, you know, her friends out here all praying for me. And they would pray for me in prayer meetings, you know, where there's thousands of people that are, you know, crying out to God. I mean, they would pray for me and pray for me. And, you know, what did I know? I didn't know everybody was praying for me. I started developing a lot of phobias on living on the street. I began to hear voices in my head. And it just began, it, it, it was constantly accusing me and constantly telling me how I would mess up. And then there was like another voice that started in. And I could hear them both at the same time. And the other voice would just curse and just spew out filthy language. You know, there was a third voice that used to just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. I was riding the trains, and um, this, this guy, who was like a drug addict, who was also riding the train, said to me, you look like you're dying. And he said, there's a hospital the next stop. You should go to the hospital, you know? And I went, oh yeah, maybe I will. Because I didn't want to die on the street. I went into emergency, and uh, I was I was sick. I mean, I was really sick. I don't know if it's something I remember that Wanda had said to me, or whether like an angel whispered in my ear. But there was like one moment where I just heard like a sweet little voice in the midst of all that craziness, and it said, "The day you call the name of the Lord, it's going to set you free." It was just at that moment that. Uh, that I cried out to God, that it, it was as if the Spirit of God just swept into that hospital room, and it was as if He was all around me, and all in me, and healing me, and loving me. I, I don't even know what I was experiencing, but it was it was an overwhelming experience, and immediately all the voices in my head stopped. It was just that quickly. And um, that's been 11 years ago almost, and they've never come back. Well, Wanda came back into the picture when um, I was in the rehab. I wrote her a letter, and I told her what had happened. And... Um, 
and she wrote me back a letter and she said like it had three big letters on it W-O-W I said wow <laughs> she, she couldn't believe it I'll tell you the thing that blows me away more than anything is that God goes so much further than we ever dare to ask him for. You know what I'm saying? Like when I call on the name of the Lord, I just want to get out of a jam. <laughs> you know? I, and, and God says, no, no, I'll get you out of the jam, but I'm going to give you a new life. Not only that, I'll go even further than that. I'll stand you up in front of all the world, in front of audiences of thousands and thousands of people so that others will know that they too can obtain mercy. You know, it's almost like a trophy, like you're his trophy that he wants to show off to the world and say, I can do this in somebody's life. Danny Velasco, can we say amen to that? <clears throat> you notice he says it four times. She never gave up on me. She never gave up on me. She never gave up. She never gave up. Wanda had all kinds of posses praying with her just for Danny. You know, you, you, you sow the seed and then you pray. Something's going to happen, right? So he's a product of them sowing the seed, them praying. Because when I met him, he was already a Christian. What a testimony. My goodness, I didn't know any of that was going on. But it was. Which brings me to a, a, an important point. <clears throat> I think the best way that churches can grow, no matter how small they are or big they are, is by sheep, reproducing sheep. Wanda and her husband are Danny's spiritual parents in a way. He looked at me as a, a spiritual father because we traveled together and I saw him give his testimony in Japan and Korea. But he, um, he owes it to God working through Wanda that she just was so bold. So let's take, for example, your church, right? Let's just take your church, whatever your church is. So let's say... A third of your church, just a third, not everybody, just a third. A third of your church between now and Labor Day. A third of your church won one person to Christ. Didn't take New Hampshire for God. Didn't take Manchester and all of that. Just a third of your church through your preaching, you're praying with them. God inspiring them, filling up with his, filling them with his love. Because she, Wanda and those girls, they loved Danny. They loved him. He's the most lovable guy. So <clears throat> if a third of your church between now and Labor Day did that, and then another third of your church, just one, just one person, led, brought them to church, they found Christ through your preaching, or they led them, 
Then let's say another third, not everyone, just a third of your church between Labor Day and Christmas, just one, one person to the Lord. Just one. Instead of just sitting and being spectators in the meeting, they felt like, no, I got to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I got coworkers. I got family members. The night cometh when nobody can work, okay? And they won one person between Labor Day and, and, and Christmas. So you get the picture. Do you know within 18 months, two years, you'd have to find a new building? You know that, right? Would you not? And you know what it would cost you in budget? Zero. So that's on us. Someone asked me at lunch, so what do you do for evangelistic outreaches? You know, um, at Christmas and Easter, my daughter, my middle daughter is very, very gifted. <clears throat> and she has a Christmas show, Easter show, they call it that. People come in. The Easter show is called Story of Love. Very dramatic, very wonderful. And we advertise it on bus stops everywhere, billboards, uh, 30, 40,000 little cards our people can invite their friends to. So that's, they come in. I don't know how it is here, but at Christmas and Easter in New York City, people show up in church like there's no tomorrow. They don't know God. They're not planning to come back. But for Easter or Christmas, they have to be there. Is that tradition here or no? Okay. So that's an outreach. And then sometimes we'll have a special meeting or a special speaker. Um, in years gone by, Nikki Cruz, years and years ago, Nikki Cruz would come give his testimony. We'd advertise, especially in Latino neighborhoods. But what I'm finding, I pray for people at the altar. When we baptize people, I get their testimony. I read some of them to the church. So Mary here was involved with prescription drugs, and then she got suicidal. But then someone on her job invited her to come to church. Then she heard the gospel, and now she's a new creation. Over and over and over. But that's us now. we got to motivate. We've got to train. we got to get people not just going to church. we got to get them alive for Jesus. Amen or what? Are you with me on this? Or? So, and, and there's no budget to it. The, and it seems like that's the biblical way. When persecution broke out against the church after Stephen's um, um, martyrdom, the Bible says the apostles didn't go out. There's questions whether they should have or shouldn't have. They hung around Jerusalem when Jesus said, said, go into all the world. But it says all the Christians who got persecuted, lost their jobs or whatever, everywhere they went, they proclaim the good news of Jesus. The congregation, not the preachers. How could the preacher possibly do the work of the Lord in terms of evangelism? <clears throat> One other thing I want to say before I show this video is this. As Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Not be an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Timothy was not an evangelist. He was a pastor. But pastors, us... We have to learn how do you do the work of an evangelist by being a pastor. So um, <clears throat> I want to address one other question that I just remembered was given to me. So you and I have to stop and ask what amount of our time, our budget, our meeting together, what part of our church life is aimed at, Lord, how do we do the work of an evangelist? So, so... For anybody to get saved, right? Here's the person who needs to get saved. They're either going to come into the Brooklyn Tabernacle or we're going to get to where they 
where they are. But they're not getting saved unless they hear the gospel. Do we all agree? So we either going to get them here through how? I don't know. The people bringing them or, or we're going to get to where they are. That's why I'm, I'm telling you we're showing the, um, this, the rescue around the country because we're trying to present the gospel. I was burdened watching Christian television where so many are running a scam just to get, you know, seed faith money and all of that, which is another name for I want your wallet. Um, they never say, by the way, send your, give your money to your church and God will honor you or support a missionary. No, it's send it to the man of God or the woman of God. It's so obvious, so sad. And strangers look at that and think that's what the gospel is. Bunch of con artists. So um, what I'll show you here as I close and turn it over to the leadership is our little effort at both in New York and around the country and now around the world. I got it, I got it dubbed in Spanish and we're going to start to show it in Argentina and Chile and these places because it's pure Jesus, pure gospel. So our own people reproducing themselves by bringing in people is the most effective evangelism. Billy Graham used to call it Operation Andrew. You know, Andrew went and found Peter and brought him to Jesus. So uh, that's very effective. Although, however God leads you, do whatever. Um, and may I just say this. Fellowship with other churches is great. And when a, there are no more Billy Grahams around, it seems, when he would come to a city... Pastors would work together and everybody cooperate for his efforts, right? But in the end, what I've noticed, you might disagree, that's fine, but I've noticed you got to find no church can help you build your church. A pastor and church, we should fellowship together and love each other because that's a testimony to the world that we're the body of Christ. But you have to dig your own well and break through and find out God you've got to visit us so we can be all you want us to be. I don't think another church can do that for you. And it's very hard to work always because styles are sometimes different, major doctrinal issues. So we fellowship together, we encourage each other. Sometimes we can work together on a joint effort. But if you study church history, some pastor and leadership says, God, we, we want to see a breakthrough. We're shutting down everything. We're going to pray until you come. And, and, and change us, change the way I preach, change whatever, and then you see that church multiply. And then it becomes a model to other churches where, wow, if God did it in that place, why can't he do it with us, right? Um, so we have our work set out for us. Amen? Amen. So one last thing. In that letter for Thessalonians, which has meant a lot to me because... I was in London doing some work with my late friend Dave Wilkerson and then ended up in a hotel room with a Weymouth translation of the New Testament sitting on the floor reading my devotions and God opened up, I felt, First Thessalonians to me in a new way. Not the verse I read to you, but this other passage. And it's so important, I can't leave you without saying it. Another thing we can pray about Paul says, so they had accused him of not really caring for the people after he left. And he said, no, listen, I haven't come back for a year, but I've wanted to many times. I was torn away from you, like a boyfriend torn away from his girlfriend. I was torn away, wanted to come to you for what is my joy, what is my crown, what is my glory, 
What's my hope on the day when Jesus comes again? Is it not you? Yes, you are my joy and my crown of glory. Earlier he says something more provocative. He said, you remember when I was with you, I was like a mother, gentle mother nursing a baby at her breast. And the picture in the Greek is a woman with a newborn baby pulling down her dress, taking the baby to her breast. That gentle, giving out everything. He said, that's how I was. Later he says, in all my troubles, now that Timothy's come back and told me that you're strong in the Lord, now I really live because you are strong in the Lord. And I would say that along with preaching in power, the Holy Spirit, and in deep conviction, the one thing we got to maintain, pastors and leaders and men and women that are here, we got to ask God to help us to see the people the way he sees them and feel what he feels. Because as I said before, jokingly, if we're not being operated on by the Holy Spirit, people can become a pain in the neck because they can torment you sometimes. But if you see the imagine like a mother nursing the baby, you know many pastors who, you know a lot of pastors who look at their congregations that way? I know a few. Now I really live because you're doing good in the Lord. That love, you can't teach it. You can't get it through a study guide. It has to come from God himself, where you start seeing the people the way he sees. Then that, that's when you weep over them and pray for them. Whoever you love, you pray for. And why a lot of our prayer time is barren is because... When my daughter, oldest girl, was away from the Lord for two and a half years and my wife and I went through a nightmare, do you think you had to tell me to pray every day for my daughter? Are you joking with me? That's my girl. I'm going to cry to God for her. But it seems like Paul had that for all of his congregation. He was calling on God, praying, asking God to help them. We need that, don't we? Not just the message and the power, but the heart the compassion, the love, the patience. I need it every day. I need it every day. So I really enjoyed being with you. I hope something I've said has encouraged someone. Um, I want to show you one of the little chapters of the rescue. You can get this for yourself and show the whole thing, or you can just forget about it. It doesn't matter. I just wanted you to know. That is the, the alternative, right? Like, who cares? Um, I want you to see this because uh, these people work in, on the floor where I work, this uh, couple. But their backgrounds and all of that, you know, here's Samer Mohammed, a Palestinian refugee full of hate. Here's Alex Cologne, a thug from downtown Brooklyn, beating people up with bats and getting a job with the mafia. As a, as a collector of bad loans and, and people don't want to pay. And here's a girl named, um, um, I'll think of her name, uh, who was sexually abused from 7 to 12 by someone in her family. And her mother was bipolar, no dad, and she moved 27 times in two and a half years. Ended up living in the car with her mother and it, the story is how all of them found Christ. But this is the most unusual case. I hope we got it loud. We got it right from the beginning. We'll go to dark. I love you all. God bless you, okay?
I started working on Wall Street because my brother had worked there and he offered me the opportunity. And I felt, yeah, you know, could go on Wall Street, make a lot of money, and I will arrive because that's, that's the, the American dream. Have a lot of things, have a lot of money, you know, do well. Well, I started to make good money. And, um, and with that making good money, I started to really party and have a good, what I thought was a good lifestyle. I had expensive cars. I had expensive taste. I went to um, the best restaurants, the best clubs. Um, I was womanizing, you know, a different woman all the time, you know, and I would always, it was for me like the chase, you know, once I could capture them and once I could reel them in, then I'd go on to the next one or my attention would turn to the next one. I just was on a crazy kind of ride. My parents got divorced when I was really young. My dad had met another woman and decided he no longer wanted to be married to my mother anymore. So at the time, my mother had two very young children and she started going to this church. And at the time, I was too young to know what was going on. But as I got older, I began to maybe realize this church wasn't exactly normal. There was control in all areas, what you could and couldn't do, what you wore, where you went. If you went out of town, you had to get approval for that. You would call the pastor. I mean, in every aspect, whether I could be in the band, whether I could play sports, whether I could go to prom, I thought God was this angry man up there. And if there was anything I wanted to do and didn't get approval, and if I did it, he was angry with me. He was, I disappointed him. I decided I'd had enough. I couldn't live here. My entire life had been rules and regulations, and that said I was done. I told God that I wanted nothing to do with him anymore. I always wanted to be a flight attendant. I began to travel. I began to have layovers in parts of the world I only had dreamed of going to. And life kicked off really good. And I was free. And I was, I had no one telling me no. I had no one that I had to get approval from. But through that too, I began to do everything I said I would never do. I was traveling on a lot of business trips, South Beach, Miami. And then one weekend I went there and I had been partying, you know, pretty hard after three days of drinking. I took a trip home and I was on the airplane and I was just very hungover. The woman next to me had rang the call button for the flight attendant to come over. So the flight attendant came over and she asked me if I needed anything. I said, no, I don't need anything. I think the passenger next to me wanted a glass of water, but then they got up and she said, water? Water? She started making fun of the way my Brooklyn accent saying water. And I was like, you're not supposed to make fun of me. So I go back, I get him a cup of water. And as I come and bring him his water, he asked me if he could take me out sometime. And I was kind of taken aback. And this guy looked like he hadn't showered. He looked, he looked like he was hungover. And so I kind of looked at him. And in the friendly kind of way that I do, I was like, okay. But I walked away, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, did she just really say okay, did that like work that easy? So, but then the whole flight goes by and she just ignores me and I'm like, you know, what is, what's up with that? Um, but as I'm getting off the plane, she hands me her phone number. 
about a month later, we went on our first date and we started dating. This guy, he was Mr. Wall Street. I mean, he was a Wall Street guy. We went to the best clubs, VIP treatment. We didn't wait in line. We had VIP seating in the club, uh, traveled together, best restaurants, gifts. Our first Christmas together, I didn't know you could get so many gifts from a guy. Um, I thought I had made it. I was on top of the world. I had my dream job. I had this great guy who was really into me. Um, I thought, this is it. Life is good. But I didn't change who I was. You know, I was still this Wall Street womanizing guy, and I gave her this Wall Street lifestyle, but I wasn't faithful. So after about a year and a half, that relationship ended, and I went on to the next girl. My world came crashing down. I honestly wanted to marry this guy. And um, it was hard. I remember being very depressed. My life began to spiral out of control. I didn't have any rules anymore. I began to date and date. I didn't really say no to anything. I continued to live that lifestyle and, and it continued to get worse and worse, the perversion of things that I was doing and the lifestyle that I was living. You know, I was trying to find whatever I could to try and bring me happiness and it just seemed like the, the only thing I was doing was digging a deeper pit for myself. I had partied one night in the city like crazy. And I had been with a guy that was no strings attached. I was leaving his place that morning, and I was walking through the streets of New York City. And it was a Sunday morning, and on Sunday mornings, the city's dead. It's quiet and it's silent. And I remember leaving that apartment with shame. You remember looking up at the sky and saying, who have I become? I hated who I was. And so I thought I was going to catch a train to go back to Jersey. But instead, I Googled a church that someone had told me about. I had leftover party clothes on, leftover makeup all over my face, short little outfit on. And I got on that train, and it took me to the church that I Googled. And I walked into that church that morning. And the usher sat me like on the second row. I didn't understand my life. I didn't understand my past. But I was ready to live for him. I was ready. I was done. I was done with who I'd become. And I was ready to live for him. And little by little, God began to work on me. And he began to soften my heart. And I began to experience Jesus' love for the first time. I started, you know, falling in love with Jesus and getting involved in church. I became a member. And all good stuff. The Lord was just growing me and healing me. And about a year after that, I get a text message. And it's Mr. Wall Street. 
I said, I need your help. I said, I'm struggling. I got shingles and I'm really depressed and I don't know where to turn, you know. And she said, well, you know, I'm not the same girl that I was when you first met me. You know, Jesus came into my life and changed me and I'm not that party girl anymore. I don't do that anymore. And for me, I was like, whatever. <laughs> so Jesus came into your life, great, but I need help, you know. And she's like, well, okay, you know. She had compassion, and she said, I'll, I'll come over as a friend, and I'll spend time with you and, you know, see what I can do. I just began to tell him about the Lord and spend time with him. And we did that for a couple months, and he got better. The shingles went away, and he went back to his old lifestyle. So I went back to work, I went back to Wall Street, and I started dating another woman, and she moved in with me. Probably about six months in, uh, our business started not to do well. It started to turn south, and really started to become a major struggle. Almost another two years went by, and Richie calls me again, and he's even worse off. He was suicidal, he was seeing a psychiatrist. And that day, as I was sitting with him, God put a burden on my heart to pray for him and to pray for his salvation. I tried to bring up the Lord again, and he didn't want to hear about it. You know, in my mind, I was like, well, how? I don't understand how that's, I don't understand how he's going to help me. God's up there, I'm down here. How does that work? I just didn't get it. He didn't want to hear about Jesus, but I knew he needed a friend. And honestly, I was afraid that he would take his life. I would always pray before he would pick me up for God just to speak through me, protect my heart, protect my mind. You know, as time went on over the next three, four months, uh, me continuing to do what I was doing, just, you know, I felt like, you know what, let me give church a try because nothing else is working. He tells me one Saturday, he's like, hey, I'm gonna come to church with you tomorrow. And I'm like, really? Because I'd been praying, not necessarily for him to come to church, but just for God to make himself known to Richie. And not too long after that, he did. He came to church. And that was it. But I just know that I went home that day and I just felt like my eyes were open and my ears were open. I actually picked up the Bible and I felt like, wow, this is like alive. Like, this is just speaking to me. Like, this is life. I remember Timothy even coming over that night for dinner and I said to her, I picked it up, I'm like, this is life. There's life in this book. I mean, it's just alive. Like, you know, everything I've ever wanted to know is in here. He began to come to church every Sunday. He wouldn't skip. I think there was one time I wasn't going to go, and he was like, no, we have to go. And um, the amazing thing is I got to be a part of the story of seeing God transform him right before my very eyes. And one Sunday, I started praise and worship. And I usually have my eyes closed the entire time. But this particular Sunday, I look over at him and his hands are like raised. And he's fallen in love with the same Jesus that I've fallen in love with. And it was real. It wasn't some forced or question. And I said, oh no, Jesus, we have a problem. My heart began to pound. And I began to look at Richie like, those feelings began to come back, and I didn't know if he had those feelings. We ended up spending a day down in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, and we were hearing somebody speak, and 
We felt like God just touched us that day. It was like a day that the Lord has made. It was just perfect. And we were just like floating on air. And at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, like I just think like God has a purpose for us together. Like I think we're meant to be together. And she said, you know, I was thinking the same thing. In April of 2012, we ended up getting engaged. And, um, and then not too long after that, we got married at uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle on a Tuesday night prayer meeting. It was awesome. To begin a life, to have thousands of people praying over us and with us. And to this day, I know people recognize me. From that day, I've had people tell me, we're still praying for you guys. And God knows we need it. Um, only God could do something like this. We had heard about a missions trip that our church was going to be taking to Ethiopia. And um, we started praying. And honestly, at first... I wanted to go to a beach somewhere and just lie around, but we, we had decided to both pray separately. You know, it was just one of those things where it was presented to us and we just felt God's peace about it, that this is what we need to do. And then we decided that we were going to go to Ethiopia on our honeymoon, and we did. And Paul is crazy, but we still think about it to this day, and we knew that that was the best decision for us. Whatever view I had of God before was that I needed to come to God in good condition, right? I think like I have, I have this view of like, you know, God was holy and um, I wasn't. But then I realized that in my brokenness that I can truly come as I am at that moment in time. And God wants me to come that way in my brokenness, and He accepts me that way. That He died for me in that condition, in my sin. And you don't have to make yourself better. You don't have to stop doing something before you come to Him. He's the one who stops you. We can't do it on our own. Just as you are. Because He's waiting. He's waiting. Yes, He's waiting. We can't do it on our own. I, me, I, I, I couldn't stop doing anything, but only because of Jesus coming to Him as your, He's the one who gives us the strength. It's Him who lives within us that helps us to stop the things that we've become addicted to or the things that we've done that we said we would never do or that I said I would never do. He's the one who changed me and has made the person that I am today.
Could we just uh, express our gratitude to Pastor Jim one more time?